The focus is on mental health. Oh, yeah. And we're talking, you know, to start with kind of in general, how we feel our community and area is doing with mental health and their approach and uh, the state of mental health in the community. Mm-hmm. And then as we go along, just, uh, you know, if you're feeling open to talk about your own stuff and things you've been through and uh, some of the tools and techniques you use for yourself to mm-hmm. help kind of manage I think your stuff. I've been pretty blessed to have a pretty easy go of it, but uh, I mean, I can talk about how I've managed to stay productive and stay healthy. I got in a bit of a rut the first month or so. You go to ha- like having no vocation, no nothing to get up for. And uh, especially when there's, you know, there's so much happening and so much to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had other periods like uh, where after I finished my internship at the Sun, it's it feels so different once you've actually worked with the like under the auspices of a newspaper to go out and try to do journalism without that. Um, I don't want to say authority, but you have that credibility, the credential of actually working for an accredited news publication, and then you don't, you feel like you shouldn't be there. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult to stay motivated, but, uh, look, um, like there were a few good, uh, very important things going on that I still came out for and the five elements of letting go the podcast discussing mental health openly and freely and learning tools and techniques to find peace. So hello everyone. Welcome to the five elements letting go. I'm Dr. Jared McCollum and my guest today is Brent Culver. Uh, He's an award-winning photojournalist and he's done work in the national post, the Calgary Herald, Calgary sun, and even our local paper here, the Oktoks Western wheel. Um, he's a traveler. He is also, uh, he does a local search and rescue for our area. And most importantly, he's a schnitzel aficionado. You've read my Instagram profile. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Um, yeah. What is that all about? (laughs) I don't know. I made schnitzel the night I rewrote it. (laughs) Who doesn't like schnitzel? I mean, well... I hope there's vegan schnitzel. Everyone should be able to enjoy yeah. schnitzel. There should be a schnitzel for everyone. There we go. That just gives you an idea on uh, Brent's personality right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's crazy uh, it, it, that you might have spotted those, uh, like the, the Herald and the National Post and those. Uh, it's actually, uh, I do a bit of freelance work for an NGO that uh, ma- like looks after wetlands and stuff, the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And uh uh, it's it's kind of like a whack-a-mole seeing where my name pops up for those photos because mm-hmm. they go with press releases and um, then ironically sometimes they send they're sending me my own photo at the Western Wheel and I'm like oh who's that guy <laughs> yeah. that must be so weird <laughs> yeah it's fun that's cool. I mean it's a, it's just a wonderful way to see the world or like interact with the world mm-hmm. so yeah so how. So your plan always, you always, was it something you always wanted to do? You know, actually after, like after high school, I didn't have much direction and uh, I liked taking pictures in high school. I was one of the ComTech kids at the Foothills Composite. Uh, mm-hmm. We actually got to develop film back then. Oh, I remember doing that in junior high oh. and that's like, 
A long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I went back there before they did the renos and like, yeah, we don't let the kids use the chemicals anymore. I'm like, but why not? That, that's, that, that's a huge experience. We used to have races to see who could, yeah, you know, uh, take it out of the, the canister and put it in the developer the fastest. And yeah. And you always had like a little bit of film that got pooched by the, uh, the light. Uh, yeah. Oh God. <laughs> that was my ComTech teacher, Mr. Ralph's word, pooched. Everything was pooched. And now, oh God, it's happening. <laughs> You've become a teacher. <laughs> uh, but uh, they've got a great teacher over there right now, uh, Ben Stevens, a guy who's done phenomenal things with that program. Can't say enough good things about that school these days. Oh, that's um, yeah. Uh, the, uh, yeah. So after like that, I, I just worked for 10 years, uh, drove a forklift and, uh, I, I took pictures in the evenings after I got off work and me and my buddy would uh, maybe run around Calgary and find cool places, uh, just take walks. And I wanted to find a way that uh, I was taking photos of new things every every day. And uh, I, I didn't want to be taking, you know, just uh, the same the same picture every day. And uh, uh, I wanted to tell stories. And, of course, photojournalism is what that is. So I... Uh, I took the leap and I enrolled in that and yeah, it, uh, it, it happened mm -hmm. and it's a, uh, it's a lucky, lucky thing for that to happen. Um, and I've counted my blessings. Yeah. Well, you take some gorgeous pictures. Well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, I'm going to put a link uh, in here for his website, but you should definitely check out his page. Pictures are great. Yeah. I actually just got to updating that thing. So mm -hmm. yeah. Some of my favorites are, um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm going to put that. That's going to be the front first photo. Yeah. Beauty. Yeah, nothing like me in drag, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. Whatever does. Like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, and that's the thing. You get to, like, you get to photograph some of the craziest, most outlandish things. When I was at the... Uh, the student paper at SATE, which is actually called the Emery Wheel or the Wheel, W-E-A-L. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still operating. I think it just, uh, but uh, yeah, I was a student photographer for that. And uh, well, the, so the focus we, we share with this is, uh, is all about mental health and, you know, how we personally deal with our issues, but uh, globally as a community as well, how we approach it. I would imagine as a journalist and, you know, taking photos, you've experienced some pretty interesting things along that line, you know, within the community and, and seeing the stresses and difficulties people go through. Yeah. Um, you know, having grown up in this community, I've known that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a wonderful place, but uh, that doesn't mean that people aren't having problems underneath that. And I mean, even some of the folks that I'd see around town when I was a teenager and, you know, then you you hang around long enough and you run into them and you learn about those problems and you just understand that everyone's got a struggle and that, that really, I try to color my approach to dealing with everyone with that in mind that, you know what, I, I don't know what this person might be going through. Um, and that's more just a way of life, but, uh, sometimes I, but, uh, yeah, I, I would say I've learned working for the paper, you, you get to see a lot more of that than the layperson. And, uh, 
it's really just about being able to understand and tell people's struggles objectively. We have to, mm-hmm. uh, we can only, at a newspaper, people don't always know this, but we can't fight a battle for someone. We can just lay the facts out on the table. We are, cu- a news article, a good a good journalist is basically curating facts in a, like a kind of a way to digest it well. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of tough sometimes because you do know what somebody's going through and yeah, but you, you want to say more, but you can't, what we or, can do is we can, we can tell that person's story as best as we can accurately and, uh, hope that that helps them. Mm. How do you feel the, you know, media in general, you know, it's, we've seen a bit of a shift with COVID and mm-hmm. black lives matter and all of this, but let's say for the past, you know, 10 years, how would you say media has been handling mental health in general? I still feel like a rookie in that department, but uh, um, I would say that it has been, it's the most, ver- like, I would say, at least for the last few decades, it's been the very traditional doctrine, like what I just said, where we can just lay out the facts. Um, But now there are discussions, like for, say, the BLM protests, Mm -hmm. uh, um, there are uh, journalists getting attacked as well. And uh, there are... Discussions and say like a, a brief that went out with the national or the news photographers association or national press photographers association. Sorry about uh, both. Uh, you know, do we continue trying to get names of people that are wearing masks? Do we try to identify? And it's a it's honestly it's way that's way above my head. But I do think that. Uh, um, with COVID, it's uh, it's important for us to be telling, trying to find positive stories as well as, but we can't avoid telling the negative parts as well. We have yeah. to just tell it all. Mm-hmm. And that can sometimes be distressing because I think everyone gets fatigued with the news cycle. And it's not anything we're trying to do to drive this. It's just we have to tell it all, and yeah, there's a lot of negative stuff. But we were act like uh, when this was starting out, we were actively trying to find positive stories to because we want to tell it all, and that's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. Um, we yeah, we don't really get choosy in that sense. It has if it's a credible story and it's worth telling, we want to tell it. That's good. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I got a little rambly there. That, no, that's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, you know, you know, personally, when I, you know, look at the media for the last while, um, you know, pre all of this, just shake up because mm-hmm. things are changing very quickly. Um, you know, there's, it just it seemed for a long time in media was something that just wasn't talked about very much. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, some corporations got in on mental health once a year, right? Bell and other companies. Mm-hmm. And then it seemed like when it was popular or it was something that was in vogue, 
they'd bring it up for a few days. And then um, do you think there's going to be a shift with all of this that it's something that they're going to be a little more open and honest about? I would think that uh, it is going to, there's going to be a lot of workplace shakeups in general. I mean, we're looking at uh, the, I think I was reading something the other day, the hidden trillion dollar office industry, like offices are, I think there's still going to need to be a thing and it for certain scenarios. And I don't know about that, but uh, I think another new normal that they should look at is how companies look at their employees' health and mental health. Mm-hmm. And it's, there, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but I, you know, I've read pieces that analyze studies looking at it, like a, a happy worker is a productive worker. Yeah. And so if you aren't focusing on your employee's mental health, that employee is not going to perform for you. It's, it's all give and take. Mm-hmm. And it's the same if the employee is like physically unable to do their work, of course they're going to be less effective, but Mental health has to be looked at the same way. It's it like it's like it can't be stigmatized, mm-hmm. and it has to just be taken care of and looked at as something that, well, let's help you get better. Yeah, and you I've know, been blessed. I haven't had to deal with that, but yeah, it's like it's actually a thing in uh, photojournalism. Is uh, I think our my instructors actually said that like. Um, you're at, um, like horror, like crash scenes, murder scenes mm-hmm. and the police get counseling, the paramedics get counseling. And I got to say, I know a lot of them are still suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, the victims have counseling available to them. The journalists do not have counseling available to them. And, um, it's not really our choice to go or not. Yeah. So like, uh, maybe we're not as necessary to be there, but but there's if, someone making us go. But if your corporation expects you to be there to do that work, yeah, they have to understand that that's a risk for you, yeah. and they should be covering that. Well, I think, uh, and I've had that support in my company, luckily. Uh, it's just been told that, you know, take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been lucky there. But uh, I've known journalists that have suffered in that way. So, Well, I just imagine, like you said, crash scenes, uh, uh, you know, crime scenes. You've got uh, the war photographers and... Remember, you know, prior, uh, you know, like the first war where, you know, journalists, photojournalists were actually getting in there and getting photos was the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And it's because of photojournalists that we got the truth of what was happening there, how how harmful it was to the not only the soldiers, but the cloud, you know, the the communities that they're (laughs) basically carpet bombing and, and, and all of that, that that information was never getting out to the public prior and just I can't imagine, you know, like it, whether you're seeing that as a soldier or a paramedic or whatever, seeing it as a photojournalist, it's the same. Yeah, if you're not getting that support, that's damaging. And I think uh, COVID is probably adding just one more layer of stress to first responders. Uh, already probably astronomical stress levels like paramedics in this province, I don't think get enough credit for the struggles they go through. I know a few of them and uh, it's, it's a hell of a job. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, yeah, like uh, it's, it's just something where 
it, it, as long it should just uh, be okay for them to say they're having trouble. And I'm not sure uh, in any industry anywhere we're really there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we were um, last episode. I was talking to Michelle Traxel mm. about you know we're getting very uh, aware of like systematic racism, mm. but there's like this uh, systematic um, you know approach to how corporations and capitalism works that create a lot of mental health issues for our communities, you know, whether it's, uh, not paying people full-time wage with benefits, mm-hmm. you know, like everyone's a freelancer or part-time. So they're not getting the full benefits and supports. They're not getting proper time off when they're either, you know, sick or, mm. you know, uh, having mental health stuff and that whole system, that whole, um, you know, that's putting everyone in a position where they just can't know that they're going to have a job that, provides them with enough money to care for them, you know, financially and healthcare wise. And they're in the gig economy. They're adding all these other things, constantly working. And that approach and how we've let, you know, our work situations become is creating a lot of mental health issues, you know, for a lot of people because work is just not the same it used to be. Well, and uh, I don't think anyone who's ever uh, pushed uh, bootstrap mentality has ever actually had to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and that's the thing is uh, if you like when minimum wage was created, it was created with the idea that you should be able to pay for like a roof over your head and like the what is it, the nuclear family, the two mm-hmm. kids and the dog. Yeah, uh, with that same thing, and um, uh, it's interesting that we've gotten to a point where people think it's unreasonable for people to ask to be paid a living wage. And especially when when we've uh, found out, and like it's been declared, that the people making our food and uh, selling us our Kirkland toilet paper, they're essential. Mm-hmm. They need to be out there. Yeah. Um, and actually, Costco is a bad example because they do pay their workers a living wage, and they actually go to bat each year at their. Uh, uh, shareholders meeting and they tell their their shareholders tell them why can't you be more like Walmart cut your pay cut your benefits and they say no mm-hmm. um, so uh, yeah like uh, it, it's uh, it's kind of interesting and I think uh, uh, it's just kind of outlandish that we have to actually argue that people should be able to not live in existential dread mm-hmm. yeah well and then even some of those workers, you know, they're determined that, you know, they're essential. We should give them a couple extra bucks an hour for hazard pay, all this stuff. And then two months later, they take that two bucks back. And I think the competition bureau is looking at that because uh, it turns out that the, the three of the major companies uh, were in contact with each other. Like, hey, should, are, are we cutting this? Oh, my goodness. Really? Yeah. yeah. The, I think the Globe Mail or... Uh, yeah, I think it was a globe I read that in. Yeah. Yeah, I I believe it. We've that's the thing with um, you know, Canada we have such you know, we don't have a whole lot of competition, you no. know, whether that's media, cell whether phones. cell phones, <laughs> I was just going to say all these things and these companies do behind closed doors work together and is what what do we call that an oligopoly when there's like uh 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's, uh, I'm going to have to look that article up again, but, uh, they actually did call that all, they use the word oligarchs in this, yes. mm-hmm. in this article, uh, in the globe. And, yeah. um, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because we like, I think we do have it a lot better in Canada than, uh, like obviously there's a full meltdown down South mm-hmm. and there's people up here that are trying to make us more like that at this very, like at the same time they want, they're telling us we should be more like that as it burns. Yeah. And, uh, that's concerning, but, uh, luckily I think those voices are still, uh, just a vocal minority. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I think this shakeup has at least a way like pointed out that we need to value the people to keep our society running more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, there's, um, you know, for sure. One thing that we all need to, and, and I, I hope this is the next <laughs> big, uh, um, like social push, you know, we're, we're trying to fix racism. We're, um, you know, it, I think the next thing that we will see and, you know, it'll start in the U S again is a rise up for, you know, proper wages and proper care. Because one thing I thought was very interesting, um, you know, from some of the politicians in our country is after, you know, we're, we've, people have been receiving CERB for three, you know, months or so. And then they started complaining that, well, we got to take CERB away from these people because they're staying home on CERB and not working because their pay is, they're getting paid more to stay at home with CERB than they are at their jobs because their pay is so poor. And, uh, and I've been blessed to be able to find ways to keep busy and, uh, whatnot. But that's the thing is that is, um, it, the idea that, uh, we should be taking away that threshold. So yeah, the idea that people should be going back to work is saying that, uh, people belong in precarious, certain people belong in precarious positions is Mm -hmm. what that's saying. Yeah. Um, and that you should accept your precarious position and your existential dread. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, if uh, if your business model doesn't involve people being able to live, you might not want to be in business. <laughs> um, you might not be a business. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's a thing that, uh, like, let's go back to Costco again. I, I worked there for 10 years, and it can get incredibly comfortable, and you have to actually motivate yourself to... But uh, it's, uh, they realized that it's actually better in their environment to have implo- like a lower turnover. Um, when I was there, like you'd have a, a big board in the office of like a, everyone's picture and name and uh, they'd keep sliding that up as seniority, you know, some people would turn over and half of the board of people had been there for five years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people in there that have been there for 25 years and that makes their 
company run extremely well yeah. because these people get extremely good at it and actually care about what they do. And they just figured out somewhere along the way that that's better than having people that turn over quickly and don't care. Yeah. And I don't blame those people for not caring if it's, if they're in a horrible environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's well, interesting, I've always thought that, um, you know, it seems like the upper trend is all these oligarchs and, you know, billionaires plan our, well, I'm just going to keep getting more and more and that separation will increase. But, you know, the thing is, is those people need money to buy the things they're making and selling. <laughs> well, and if they don't have enough, the system will eventually collapse. That's the thing is, uh, I think the thing people don't get about CERB is it kept our economy going. Mm-hmm. There's all this talk about restart the economy and whatnot. Well, the economy would have collapsed, like it stopped, but it would have collapsed and imploded mm-hmm. if people weren't able to buy the essentials. And yeah. in every single, like a, I, I think there's a lot that would need to be worked out about this model. Um, I'm not pushing it too hard, but in every single test of a universal basic income, mm-hmm. the people on it still liked to continue to work. In fact, they liked to work yeah. um, rather than had to work, and they liked it. Um, but also every dollar that they received in that universal basic income went to buying essentials. That money flows into the economy way more than any kind of trickle-down system. Yeah. The money did not go to, like, three people to put in their bunker. True story. People in Calgary have bunkers. Yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, the thing about that, yeah, like, it, it flows into the economy. And CERB, I feel like if that, if that didn't, happen people wouldn't have been able to buy groceries pay rent landlords would have not been able to pay their bills Mm -hmm. and a lot of other systems would have collapsed yeah that obviously it's a band-aid solution Mm -hmm. but uh i mean the whole idea of ubi isn't that it's just one more big check it would replace countless other systems Mm -hmm. that probably have astronomical administration expenses like cost yeah yeah the the amount of costs to have like a million people making the ei system run and a million people making the child benefit system run and i'm not against those but i mean like i said if you have separate programs you have to have different people trained yeah ubi it could probably be done by a uh like a a machine as long as it doesn't get hacked looking at ucra Mm -hmm. uh um the uh yeah, uh, but that's the thing is, as soon as if it's just one thing, like somebody did the math, it wouldn't cost us any more than what we're already spending now. It would just be simpler. Yeah. Well, and, and it flows into the economy. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, one thing that, um, you know, they're pushing, and one of the main reasons for universal health care in the United States that I've heard being pushed yeah. is. Because your healthcare is linked to your job, yep. you are afraid to leave an unhealthy job or, you know, a job that's not paying you great or you hit your boss or it's not good for your mental health, but you stay because if you leave, you lose your mental health. 
yeah. or those that have a great idea and they want to start a business that's going to benefit others or they want to do a nonprofit to help change their community. They are fearful of making those changes because they'll lose their health care. So it stifles innovation. It stifles yeah. entrepreneurism mm-hmm. is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And so here in Canada, because we have our health care, there is that room to do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, UBI, that universal basic income, takes that to another level yeah. where if you know, okay, my necessities are covered, I've got my health care, I want to do this for the world, I want to solve this problem, or I've always wanted to, you know, be uh, uh, go back and do my art, or I always wanted to, you know, do this or that. And now they have that freedom. And just what that does for our mental health. Yeah. And it's not even so much that that would allow them to like live on just that like it it in every case i've seen it's mostly just a stipend but it allows them to uh put away more money or afford or like buy more essentials or it would give them just a little bit extra to start that and say that person goes on to start a company that employs 10 people yeah they've created 10 jobs mm-hmm. um i haven't checked where our jobs are at in this yeah, I don't even want to get into that. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so. But those whole concepts of providing people with those basics so, you know, they have enough that they can go do a job that um, would maybe doesn't pay as well as they need. Yeah. But now they can go do that job to, to help others or work at the community because now they know, okay, my all of my ends are going to be meet. I'm going to be okay. And I don't have to make as much money because the UBI covers that extra. Yeah. Yeah. And then they can do a job they love or they're passionate about or really makes a difference. Well, and that also comes back around to you're going to have better workers if you have workers that are happy where they are. Yeah. And that should be simple. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, everyone says, well, where are you going to get the money from? And like I said, it's we've already got these cumbersome systems in place. It's yeah. just switching. Yeah. And. Really, I think once someone's, you know, made, uh, I don't know, like, I'm sure we can draw a line. If someone has $500 million, do they need any more? I believe I've seen a lot of thresholds <laughs> where uh, if uh, the household <laughs> income is over like 80000 or something like that, it yeah. switches off, which fair. Yeah, that's totally um, Yeah. 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 I but uh, like, it's not your dad that made $100,000 a year that people are wanting to tax more it's the guy that made a trillion last year that yeah. people want to tax more yeah yeah well my concern is always like i remember i had a discussion uh do you remember when the minimum wage came up here in alberta that was what <laughs> three or four years ago yeah yeah and i remember i, I was a member of the uh chamber of commerce mm. and the national chamber of commerce sent out a survey to all the members Mm-hmm. And it was kind of asking their opinion on this minimum wage increase in Alberta. Hmm. Now, usually surveys are supposed to be like a journalist, not take a side, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> to just kind of get your opinion if they're designed well. Yeah. <laughs> this one was so skewed. Every question it was asking was trying to get you to reinforce their viewpoint. Leading questions are yeah. called that and we're told not to do that because yeah. it's really just trying to get a... Mm-hmm. A certain answer. Yeah. And, you know, some journalists on certain networks in the U.S. do this a lot where they'll ask, you feel this way about it, right? <laughs> Just you know, getting people to say what they want to say. Yeah. But anyway, 
they, um, uh, I'm reading through this survey and it was ridiculous how much it wasn't necessarily trying to get their opinion. It was trying to get their opinion to agree with their point of view that, you know, minimum wage increase was a bad idea. And so I sat, uh, I sent an email back to the chamber and I said, you know, I kind of disagree with this. This is ridiculous. They're sending this out because it's not, uh, it's skewing people's point of view. It's Mm. not saying the other side, it's not educating people about the real issue. It's trying to get people to get a hate on, on this and Mm. make it all about how how it's going to affect small business. Now, uh, so I mentioned this and, uh, one of the members of the chamber is like, Hmm. Okay. I don't really understand where you're coming from, but I'd love to talk to you about it, which really surprising. Okay. It was, uh, Andrew Gustafson. Good and, people. Yeah. Great guy. Awesome guy. So we sat down for, uh, you know, tea and coffee and we were chatting about it. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is when you sit in that bubble <laughs> of, you know, chamber and conservatives and this point of view, the narrative they were pushing is, Minimum wage earners are just kids. And why do these kids need to raise? You know, why are they getting more money? And, you know, it's a straw man argument. Yeah. And, and I had to help him, you know, understand that majority of the people that are on minimum wage are single mothers or immigrants, you know, or people traveling from other countries working at, (laughs) you know, cargo or other places where they're not making much at all. And I'm like, these people you know, that extra money changes their lives. It's not just kids. You know, these are adults, people who are the working poor, you know, where they have 10 or 12 people in a home, (laughs) in an apartment trying to get by. And, you know, it was interesting because, again, he's an open-minded guy and he's like, I didn't know that. I didn't know those numbers. And, you know, it was nice to see that shift in his thinking. But it's interesting how, you know, we want to, those that want to, those are in power, want to maintain power and they, they skew the narrative and the stories to reinforce those, that, that control and power. But that just continues to be like, I just can't imagine because, you know, yes, I've, I've worked at minimum wage jobs in the past, even as an adult with kids, mm-hmm. but to, to be stuck in that position, because I hear these narratives where, well, they just got to work harder. And I'm like, the person that just said that, they work way harder than you. They're working two jobs at minimum wage. You know, what are you doing? It, it just drives me a little crazy when we get in that position where we don't think about how this is affecting everyone as a whole. Anyway, <laughs> do, do you hear stuff like that going on? Or am I, haven't, I, am haven't I just, heard it in the same room, but uh, you see a lot of that narrative. And uh, I think it's just that... Uh, I don't know how to tell you that you should care about other people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and this is something that's become very uh, prevalent in the media and how it's being approached, because it was something that uh, the media would never pick up on before and discuss. And now they're going back and they're finding all these old stories and sharing it. And one is like the mental health checks done by RCMP and police officers. Um, we've had horror stories here in Canada. One that just recently was in Utah that really kind of shook me. Um, like I have two sons with autism and there was a story of a, a 
a mother and her son in Utah. And, you know, uh, autistic kids can, if they get overstimmed and things get difficult, they can get a little aggressive. Mm. And so her son was having a, a moment and he's like 12. So he's bigger than her already and was having a hard time um, handling him. And unfortunately, she made the mistake of calling the police for, you know, mental health uh, support or whatever. They send the police. Um, police show up. He, he sees the police. He panics and starts to run. And he gets six bullets in the back. Hmm. Where was this? This is in Utah. Oh. No gun. No, no weapon. You know, mental health check. They know he has, you know, they, they should know he has autism because... She, she said it to the 911 call. And, and all of these things were, were having um, people who are not trained in mental health mm. going. And again, it's like hammer nail. You know, when someone doesn't do what they want, the only thing they know how to respond with is violence. Mm. And we're getting these countless stories of people who aren't approaching it. You know, uh, why do you think this sudden shift that the media all of a sudden is making these covers. Is it? I think it's just a, again, we, we're there is less stigma now than maybe 10 years ago around talking about mental health. Um, I got to say, I haven't encountered a lot of it personally. Like I haven't seen a lot of uh, cases in my work. Uh, I have, Followed calls on the scanner uh, back when it was uh, open to listen to, and you'd have a large police response go to a house, but then it just, uh, it has been cases where they've de-escalated. Um, so, I mean, like I said, it's only what I've seen. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that's not everyone's experience, and that's unfortunate. Uh, and I think it's simply that uh, if you... It's like anything. If I'm working a job and I have people dumping all these other jobs on me that I am not trained for, it's tough. And yeah. it's not something that should be expected. It's not something that should be expected to work. And so there should, like, it uh, It should be that uh, rather than having one person who's expected to be the Swiss Army knife of everything, uh, every kind of <laughs> crisis mm -hmm. there should be multi, like a multifaceted response and yeah. i'm not saying we don't need police officers to keep the peace and lord knows they deal with a lot of crap yeah. but they're you know i think they're that we are seeing that where at least it, like i i know someone who was a was kind of a like a a so, kind of a crisis response social worker mm -hmm. role uh, in the UK. And uh, she was part of a two-person team with a police officer, and they would go and deal with social issues like that. So it's not unheard of in the law enforcement world. Yeah. Um, it's maybe a little different in the States, but again, uh, a lot is. Yeah. Uh, but there are countries that are successfully doing that where they have a great – and it's a it's a partnership. It's not uh, one side putting feeling put upon by the other to have to help out or deal with this. And you're not lumping all this onto one 
mm-hmm. onto one person. Yeah. And so, uh, like I said, I haven't seen a ton of this in Okotoks, but yeah. Well, really, it's like you said, it's unfair what we're asking police officers to, to do. When yeah. They don't have that training. They don't have that experience. You know, when we call 911, you know, instead of just having fire, ambulance, and police, there should be two or three more options. Yeah. Know? And, uh, yeah, can that be a multiple choice? Like, uh, <laughs> can there be check boxes rather than um, – and that's the thing is because uh, what that is is actually that's a system now where you're getting your own phone company when you call 911. Uh, that's a TELUS employee, the first co- the first person asking, and then that goes to your local. What? Um, I think because uh, that's why they were charging for 911 delivery for a while is because I'm pretty sure it goes to like a at your phone company before it goes through to 911. Oh, I had no idea. I thought yeah. it was just um, just to cover the costs. Oh, maybe to, but, but it's uh, yeah. You know, I have a have a patient, a couple patients, two or three patients actually yeah. that do 911 calls. Yeah, and what's interesting with what they do is as. Um, they have to get certified in different calls. Mm. So when you know you call 911, what's your emergency? You tell them fire, paramedic, mm. or police, and then you're shifted, right? Yeah. And it, so then you're sent to a specific uh, operator that is trained to handle those calls. Yeah. So some, just about all of them handle, I think, uh, fire first, mm-hmm. then paramedic, well, then police, depending on the, the, and they have to go through a rigorous training to be able to handle that. Yeah, and, and I can tell you how it's structured in the foothills. Yeah. So um, in the foothills, uh, I believe uh, police is an RCMP call center up in Red Deer. Uh, and it's the same, like, I, it's the same voice as I hear, whether they're calling emergency or non-emergency, but your call's prioritized differently. Mm-hmm. Um, the fire is actually done out of... Uh, there's a call center at the emergency services building here in Okotoks. Uh-huh. And I believe there's one over in uh, the Black Diamond Hospital. Yeah. And uh, they used to also handle uh, ambulance dispatch. But uh, uh, the Western Wheels covered that very well, uh, dealing with the um, Foothills County, Reeves, Susan Ole, where the uh, ambulance dispatch used to be out of that too when it was Foothills Ambulances. But uh, when Alberta Health Services took it all over, mm-hmm. it uh, it got centralized to, I believe it's like Calgary, Edmonton. I'm not even sure where. And wow. the issue there is we have our like our rural fire address system, and uh, uh, you can read the articles, and this is all well documented. Susan Ole had like all like had dispatch logs where, uh, and this isn't the fault of the guys on the ground. This isn't their no. fault uh, but uh, ambulances were taking longer to get to cardiac arrests and stuff but uh, yeah so it's it, it's it's a little different in every province and I think I think in Manitoba you have to have experience as a medical responder on the ground to even become a a, a like a dispatcher mm. so it's uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing and those people too. That's a whole other battle. Yeah. Oh, I know. You know, even talking to some of them, just the trauma that they experience mm. just over the phone. They well, don't see it, but still having to listen and and trying to comfort these people, it's traumatic on its own. I would feel like that would be stressful to be put in that position where you can't just run out the door and help. Yeah. So and, and 
most of the time, as soon as they're there, the call ends and they never know what happened most of the time, unless they follow up, you know, on their own. It's not like they're there to see that they're okay, that they got to the hospital, they made it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gee. <laughs> There's a mental health discussion right there alone. Oh. <laughs> but again, it's, I would imagine they probably get pretty good training yeah, on dealing I with think, that uh, and, and good counseling and support. Yeah. We can hope. Yeah. We can hope. Yeah. And that's the thing is I think uh, it's just, I think we just have to realize that it's not, there, there should be more than these three roles. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we wouldn't expect a paramedic to go put out a fire. Yeah. Uh, firefighters are likely trained to kind of do some paramedic or like EMT things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some overlap, but that's for the sake of getting to a cardiac arrest quicker. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, there just needs to be an understanding that, yeah, they do need to have a bit more of a full multifaceted response. And it's not about, um, it's just about not making someone do something that is, you know, outside of their scope of training. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned earlier while we are setting up that, um, you know, you've been laid off from the wheel. Mm-hmm. Hopefully just temporarily, temporarily. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we've all dealt with our own stresses and, and the, of the uncertainty and everything mm-hmm. with COVID, you know, do you mind sharing kind of what you've been through during this time and the things you've been doing to well, kind of cope? Yeah. Like, uh, in the first, uh, first little while with that, uh, I mean, you go through a bit of a rut where like you suddenly your, your purpose is taken away. Like, uh, like I said, it's. Um, as somebody who's worked behind an accredited or under an accredited publication for so long, it's really hard to justify going out as a citizen journalist and covering this stuff, especially if you on your own time and your own dime. So I did find ways to be productive and do some freelancing, uh, Hell, I drive all the basement. Um, so, like, <laughs> I'm not like uh, that's the thing. It's I'm not shy about uh, getting my hands dirty and finding things to do for work. And I, mm-hmm. but uh, not everyone's as lucky as I am. I don't uh, live the Alberta financed boat in the driveway lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so I know that a lot of people are probably in more stressful positions than I am. Mm-hmm. And uh, but for me, uh, a fellow journalist get, offered me the advice that. Uh, from when she was in a similar position and that's just create a routine. Even if that's brushing your teeth and making coffee, mm-hmm. create a routine and, uh, just, uh, try to do productive things. And, uh, you know, uh, sure. There were a couple of days where, uh, you know, uh, you, you don't get much of anything done, but, uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, really just, um, to stave off the the um, the doldrum or the stave off that rut, I uh, I just made myself get out, and I'm blessed to live five minutes away from like n- massive natural areas. Oh, good! And so, just being outside uh, as soon as I could, I got back to my gym, Motion Fitness, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I was really depressed to find out that uh, Big Rock Bouldering had. Uh, I know. Close their doors. Yeah, uh, they they created. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a service they were offering. They had. They had a community. Yeah. And uh, they were some of the most 
beautiful, wonderful people running that place. And uh, like nine out of 10 of the people that climbed there started climbing there. So yeah. uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a huge loss for the community and there's a lot of places like that. So like I said, I'm, I'm not doing as like I'm doing a lot better than I'm, I'm sure some people are. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, don't really know what to say there <laughs> other than that, uh, you know what I, yeah, I just found that, uh, whenever I was struggling, uh, to kind of find purpose, I would just, uh, I would go out and I'd hustle and I managed to find some work and, uh, you know what, um, of course the CERB was part of that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, for me too. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh. Yeah, I I can't imagine what it, what it would be like for the people that are uh, being told that they're immoral people for not going back to their uh, not going back to a job that doesn't guarantee them uh, reasonable hours and reasonable wages. I can't imagine yeah. uh, that would uh, yeah that would be pretty rough for those yeah. people. And yeah. Uh, yeah, to see people shaming them. It is oh, unfortunate. I know. I don't, I don't know where, like, I remember. And it's, yeah, I don't think it's people that have ever had to deal with any kind of strife. No. Like, I know, um, oh, what's his name? I've already forgotten his name. He was the official leader of the opposition. <laughs> He's so unforgettable, the conservative leader for a while. Oh, yeah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Andrew Shear. <laughs> yeah. There's my opinion of okay. Andrew Shear right there. But, uh, yeah, he was, like, way on top of that, shaming everyone for not going back to work and everything. And I'm like, here's a fellow that has never worked on his own right out of university, you know, ran, uh, like he said he was a financial advisor, but he never even got his ticket, never really did anything with it. Wasn't it insurance broker? Yeah. And, and, and he went before he even finished it and became like a, a a full fledged, he ran for office and he's been a politician ever since, Mm. you know, like we have been paying his wages for him ever since he got out of university and here's a guy that's upset for other people taking money from the government. <laughs> the irony is not lost on me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the interesting thing there too was, uh, it's, a uh, it like, I just, uh, yeah, I got to say like the, there was a, there was an MP that got, laughed at in parliament for, uh, mentioning that he used to be a bus driver and, Um, uh, that kind of attitude is just unfortunate. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I gotta say it's just, I, I think that uh, a lot of people are struggling and, uh, that's why it just, uh, again, I don't know how to tell you that you should care about other people. (laughs) Um, it's like in every instance, it's been proven that, uh, access to public transit Improves productivity, therefore improving the GDP. Yeah. Access to living wages, healthcare, improves the GDP. Child care. Uh, dental care. Yeah. Um, the, of course, we have uh, like a system. If you have like a horrible dental emergency, like your infected tooth is like stopping your heart or whatever, like spreading to your heart, that mm-hmm. whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's like, the AHS does have like dentists who will perform emergency procedures yeah. for that. So the, the system where people who can't afford dentist, like dental care 
are ha- costing the system more money than it would have cost just to provide dental care. Yeah, like uh, the system we have in place is more expensive. Yeah, yeah. If we just paid for, uh, you know, biannual cleanings, yeah, that l- small yeah. amount to see a hygienist would prevent a lot of those emergency. And guess treatments. what? I'll bet there's a lot of dentists and dental hygienists. I know actually a few of them are. Uh, like I know a few hygienists, they're probably struggling right now. They probably have reduced business because people can't afford to go there. I bet this would actually, like, they would have more secure jobs if there was this system in place. And, again, those people would then be contributing more to the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's been a really inter- interesting discussion because, you know, a lot of it is just – you know, we're getting into... If this, you care this, about people, yeah. the economy does better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I spent some uh, time with friends and uh, family in the Netherlands. And, uh, I mean, we like to knock that. And that's a very capitalist country. Mm-hmm. It is. Like, it's the Unilever headquarters is there. Like, they're not, they're not communists mm-hmm. or Marxists or yeah. whatever... People like to bandy about, despite clearly having not grad like done social studies in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, these countries still have systems in place where, like, I was shocked that, like, what the hell? There's only one. I can only find this one gas station within like a hundred kilometers. It's open after eleven, and like after nine o'clock anyone gets like another two euros on top of their hourly wage after mm-hmm. midnight. It's another two euros. If yeah. uh, um, like if they're working on Sunday, it's another two year. Like they have, they have this stuff. They have like the, like a world-class healthcare system. They have like minimum four weeks paid vacation. And guess what? Those people are going and they're taking holidays in their country and they're contributing to their own yeah. industries when they're on holidays. Yeah. The, these things create a, more of a churn in the economy than somebody just throwing that in, like, into a bank account somewhere. Yeah. Well, I remember like uh, reading Sweden has the highest, you know, average income yeah. of any country in the world, and the highest number of billionaires. Mm-hmm. Of any country world. And that's not per capita. No. They just have the most billionaires. They have more yeah. billionaires in Sweden than they do in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because, again, um, where in the United States, you know, I don't know how many billionaires they have, but it's those billionaires, again, have far more. You know, they have 100 and whatever billions rather than one having, you know, in, in Sweden, they may have one or two billion, like a whole bunch of them, mm-hmm. you know, because, so, again, that that income is even spread even when there's billionaires. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, and again, they all make fun of that system. But, you know, it's clearly the, working. Yeah. The I, Dutch economy is growing. Yeah. Or at least was last time I checked. Maybe like COVID's obviously the anomaly. But yeah. 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 Now it's. And, and really, that will be the future in economies, those yeah. that care for people and those that care for mental health and, you know, healthcare in general. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are moving up. And, you know, I have lots of dear friends in the United States and, um, you know, Americans are very 
fond of saying we're number one, mm-hmm. and uh, they are in a lot of things. Like they're number one in um, the amount of people they have in prison, mm-hmm. and they're number one for having the most expensive healthcare system. And yeah, their number one school system, shooting. And their system still costs. <laughs> their healthcare system still costs taxpayers more money per capita than ours. Yeah, yeah, which is hilarious. Yeah. Well, I saw one thing today it was a guy's receipt f- to his insurance company for his COVID test, mm-hmm. and it was um, uh, twelve hundred dollars mm. for a ten dollar COVID test. But because it was covered by insurance, they overcharged the insurance companies. And yeah. it's this whole scam that just keeps going and just making the system so much more expensive. Well, and I, uh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I hate, uh, anecdotal stuff, uh, because again, that makes my journalist senses tangle, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, there was somebody saying that, uh, a long haul trucker that had to go to the States, he, you know, for whatever reason they had to send him in for a check and. He said while he was sitting in an urgent care clinic in Texas, six people walked in with symptoms looking to get a COVID test, but this test was $200 for them, and six people walked out without a test. Yeah. Well, and so this month in the United States, they have, um, because they had a moratorium on evictions, Mm. and so this month, all of those evictions are going through, and the last I heard, it was over 250 million households hmm. that will be evicted this month in the United States. 250 million. Hmm. So they've lost their jobs. They lost their health care. Yeah. Now they're going to lose their home. That doesn't sound like a good recipe for anything. No. What, uh, what's going to happen with those not, COVID numbers now? Well, those people are also like, yeah. They're, yeah. Okay. <laughs> like we think wow. we've seen the worst of it in the United States. I don't think we have. I think in the next six weeks, it's going to just blow up. Like the numbers today was 400,000 people. They figure by the end of the year will die by COVID. But that's without this, you know, all these homeless Americans. It's mm. going to, because now they will be, crammed in more homes with more people, you know, like coach surfing and so on. They'll be without work, without proper healthcare, can't afford testing. So even if they are sick, they don't know and they're not going to be able to, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, it's just frightening. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. I don't know what to say about it either, but I I love what you keep going. <laughs> Is that the Lego song? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, you know, the thing you've repeated three times now is I don't know how to tell people to care about people. Yeah. And I love, you know, that you keep saying that because that is the solution. You know, we have to start caring about others and understanding that, you know, we've, we, People want all the all the freedom without all the responsibility, yeah, yeah. and it's uh, it's really starting to sound like a uh, child throwing a temper tantrum that he has to do the dishes after he had a meal cooked for him. Yeah, yeah, and the you know we we're learning this um, reality with COVID that if th- you know these few people don't follow the rules, it can blow everything else for the rest of us. Things like can get shut down, and we can go back home. You know, and so maybe we can accept this and understand that, you know, not only is it with COVID, 
but it's with their incomes, you know, need to raise and mental health needs to be care of. Because when we ignore those that are suffering and those in difficult positions, when things don't go well for them, it affects all of us. Yeah. Sturgis Biker Rally yeah. uh, is a now considered a super spreader event. May have led to 260,000 new cases. And that was one in the Dakotas where they had, how many was it? It's like 70-something thousand yeah. bikers in one yeah, little that's community. that's the Dakota one, yeah, Sturgis. Yeah. And the guy saying, you know, ride or die, or we're going either way. And, yeah. um, uh, like, it's so easy up here. It's a, And you know what? I, I don't really, I don't have any malice towards anyone for this because it's a, I think it's an evolutionary trait where if we don't see the issue, we want to really think it's not an issue. Yeah. But uh, I have a friend who <laughs> it's kind of has to deal with a lot of things. He lives in Seattle. Mm-hmm. He works in the medical industry. Yeah. He has to pick and choose his route to work to do COVID testing or process COVID tests. I think he works in a lab because there's the federal like secret police. Yeah. In Portland uh, and Seattle. Routes. And, yeah. uh, and so he has to pick and choose his route depending on which part of the city is exploded that day yeah. to go and do COVID testing and hope he doesn't like get it. Yeah. And I mean, they're fairly lucky in that part of the country, uh, whereas, you know, like I have another friend in Texas, and it's like it, they're they if they are hurting, they have to call ahead to like if they hurt their arm or something, they want to call ahead to the hospital to make sure it isn't like piled with yeah. COVID cases because they'll get COVID when mm-hmm. with their cast. Yeah, and. It's insane. So, Uh, yeah. So again, like I said, uh, people want all the freedom without the responsibility. Yeah. So, and, and I hope this, this whole experience and, you know, what we're seeing, you know, unfortunately, like you said, you know, people don't see the issue and don't buy in until someone they know is affected, you know? So (laughs) I guess it's going to take, a very high percentage of people getting COVID for them to believe that it's a real thing. And they have to experience more people in poverty to believe that it's a problem and same with mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is that it's like, I think uh, you and I have probably been very lucky in our experiences. And, uh, but then we did learn that there are problems in our community with racism. We did learn that there, like, uh, like I said, it, it's something that I did have to learn about and educate myself about that this does happen. And I mean, it's, it's easy to ignore something if it's not affecting you. Mm. It's easy to tell someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and work harder. If you've never had to pull yourself up by your bootstraps (laughs) and work harder. Yeah. Um, It's easy to say the, this boogeyman disease isn't real. If you've never seen or felt it yourself. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. My, you know, one thing that uh, I think with all of this is, you know, it's like you said, it's far more important that we care about people and what our actions could do to harm others uh, in the collective rather than just be 
well, no, I don't believe it, so I'm not going to do anything, and I don't care. You know, and, like so. What if it? And if it isn't real, and you did all those good things, then you're still a good person. You still did the right thing, even if it wasn't. You know, if yeah. if you were right that it was all a hoax or whatever. It really mel- meant nothing to me to throw a mask on when I went into Costco. It meant nothing to me to like. It didn't affect me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't block my my masculine energy or whatever these people are <laughs> thinking like uh you know the the 5g chip hidden in the mass costco people hand me didn't you know <laughs> give me the rona or i don't even know anymore yeah um yeah uh it 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 seems like a non-issue and there are entire societies much denser populations than ours that have had no trouble Putting on masks like uh, Japan. If you're sick, you you're wearing a mask on the subway. They don't even think about it. It's just part they've of their been doing society. that for a long time. And because uh, it's common I, courtesy. And I I think they've got like insanely high uh, life expectancies, and none of them drop dead when they're wearing a mask. And yeah, uh, um, yeah, like and there's still people saying, "Well, the mask won't protect me." Well, no, that's not the point. And my favorite thing was there's uh, this one, like, I'll send you the link. It's a uh, yeah. kind of redneck uh, YouTuber guy that uh, sticks a, an aerosol can that you can see it. It sprays six feet, flammable substance, <laughs> stick, mounts it uh, in, a, in a styrofoam head and puts a, sprays it at a blowtorch without the mask on. Mm-hmm. It ignites. Yeah. Sprays it at the blowtorch with the mask on. Doesn't ignite. And he's sitting here, he's saying, cough. Cough, 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 cough. And he got about this far away and it still wasn't spraying any enough of this substance. Uh-huh. And it's not that you're not going to have anything escaping from there. It's not that. It's that it's going to dampen your disgusting, <laughs> disgusting yeah. hacking cough yeah. that you can't seem to cover with your elbow for the life of you. <laughs> <sighs> That's a pretty good analogy. The the you know the blowtorch in the mask. Yeah, it's a great video. Yeah. You need, it needs to go in the comments of this. Yeah, like, sure, no link. problem. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, thank you for your time. This has been really interesting. You know, you have an interesting point of view, and you yeah. know, from all those experiences, you know, within the world of journalism, to see that approach, it's it's you know, thank you for sharing that with all of us to get a new interesting perspective. But uh, the thing I'll take away from this is just you know. You know, say it. I don't know how to tell you that you should care about other people. (laughs) Thank you, Brent. (laughs) This has been awesome. Thank you for everyone for listening. Um, We'll put all Brent's uh, links and everything in the description. You can check out his beautiful photos. Um, You know, there's even some uh, some of the recent ones I really like from the Black Lives Matter uh, protests here in town. He took some really beautiful pictures and. You know, thank you for sharing the voices of everyone else through such a beautiful medium like photography. It's just trying to objectively show what's happening. Yeah. I, yeah. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. All right. So there was my interview with uh, Brent Culver. Um, very interesting fellow. Got into, uh, you know, a lot of stuff about how journalism perceives mental health. Um, I know with myself. Um, I've only really noticed a change or a shift in the last year or so. Uh, prior to that, it was something that wasn't discussed about much. And 
who's uh, very stigmatized by media. Things are changing, which is positive, and now we can start to get that conversation going in a healthy way and that it's not something that is uh, kind of pushed under the rug and ignored. We're actually talking about how we can help people with it and recognize that mental health has many aspects uh, regarding to our overall health and the balance of our our communities. Um, You know, uh, Brent also got into quite a few you know, kind of overall things, very similar to my discussion with Michelle Traxel, uh, talking about the root causes of mental health being not just chemical uh, or, uh, you know, physical imbalance, but the way our communities are designed, the way our economic system is designed, and uh, all of those other areas. I do like his thing that he repeated numerous times in there that, you know, I don't know how often I have to tell you to just be nice to people. And to love people and care for people. You know, it's, uh, we, uh, are, you know, our whole system is shifting and evolving with online and social media and everything where we're getting more and more disconnected from one another. And that is creating that distance and that judgment is creating problems within our communities that we need to solve. So I hope that we find ways to do that and we can, can move on and support one another. But anyway, thank you for listening to me uh, today, uh, this great discussion with Brent Culver. Very interesting fellow, and I hope you enjoyed the lesson. Uh, if you want more information on the five elements of letting go, uh, check the links below, um, and uh, you can always visit jaredmccollum.com. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great evening. Mm-hmm.